1: Welcome to the dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna
2: and I'm Amber and this week we're talking hotspots. Oh no. This okay, this is going to try this You don't again. like this intro that I crafted for you? I don't. It doesn't it doesn't feel authentic to so me. Cuz when you talk about hotspots and crust, I think of like Dog-ish. skin issues. Yeah. Yeah. All right. This week we're talking hotspots. We're talking crust, not sourdough. We're talking tectonics. That's right. It's volcanoes, baby. Not only do volcanoes contribute in various ways to the archaeological record, but they occupy a place in the mythology and history of cultures around the world. And also my phobias. Well,
1: this is yet another one of us leaning into our fears, specifically Amber's fears. Uh, But yeah, go figure, an exploding mountain makes kind of a big impression turns out. So in this episode, we're going to dive into some of the myth and legend of volcanoes. And then in the second half, we're going to talk a bit more about geology and how volcanoes show up in the archaeological record. And believe it or not, it goes beyond Pompeii and Herculaneum, although we're going to talk a little bit about that as well.
2: Yeah, just a little. But if we're going to talk about volcanoes, we have to start not too far from there, with Pompeii and Herculaneum, because volcano is actually a place. Volcano, volcano, is an island See. off the off the northern coast of Sicily and one of the Aeolian Islands. Um, maybe it's named for the god Vulcan. they don't actually, citation needed there, um, yeah. but Vulcan was a Roman god whose domain was metalworking and fire, which makes sense. You need yeah the latter to get the former. So it's his. True. Greek analog was Hephaestus, but Romans also leaned into the whole pro- fire prevention thing, um, and associated worship of Vulcan with keeping wildfires at bay. Vulcan is also a place, or at yes, least on the Star Treks. No, in in real life, or yes, at, on the Star Treks, or at least that's what Urbain Le Verrier proposed back in the 19th century CE. This was a time when the academy was trying to figure out what was up with space. Um so an enduring question. So I'm not the person to talk to ask about physics or math. So like that's no, sort I of me where that's I'm on this podcast. That. No. Um and researchers including the mathematician Le Verrier noticed that something was weird about Mer- Mercury's orbit like actual planet mercury that does exist. So, I, the prop- Yeah, I did I did know that. but one, just yes. just reinforcing it. I don't know maybe mercury is in Star Trek. I don't know. The proposed solution was another planet whose orbit fell between mercury and the sun. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. Um despite looking for it during several solar eclipses in the decades to come, the idea being that it would sort of transit across the sun and you'd be able to see it. Mm-hmm. Um uh nobody ever found planet Vulcan. So ultimately, (laughs) well, yeah, but there was still something weird about Mercury. Yes. No, I understand that. But as it turns out, it was, it was not there. So ultimately Albert Einstein's theory of relativity in 1915 was able to account for the weirdness of Mercury's orbit and astronomers were able to verify it during a solar eclipse in 1919, which I think that has to do with the massiveness of
1: the sun and the fact that gravity is affected directly by Mass, it has right? to do
2: with the bending of light. Uh,
1: yes, which also happens because an object is particularly massive and has yes. massive gravitational force, yeah. which can bend light.
2: Yeah. Yep. Okay. No plans. That's as physics-y yeah. and mathy as we're going to get. I'm like slowly, I'm like starting to get like angry at being forced to think about math and physics. Um, okay. Um, like this is... This is why I put what is up with space. This is so um, somehow I keep stumbling on non-existent planets when I prepare for this show. First, we have <laughs> Nibiru out at the end and then we've got Vulcan on the other end. Um, but we've got a long way to go in this episode. So let's head back to Earth and its Earth volcanoes. Mm-hmm. So let's do that. Pew. OK, we're back on Earth. So I'm not sure about this.
1: But I think that if I were to ask a room full of our listeners where to look for a lot of volcanoes and consequently volcano mythology, many of them would say Polynesia or more specifically Hawaii. The Hawaiian islands were formed by volcanic activity initiated at an undersea magma source. (laughs) Hi, welcome to magma source called the Hawaii hotspot. The process is continuing to build islands, the tectonic plate beneath much of the Pacific Ocean continually moves northwest, and the hotspot remains stationary, slowly creating new volcanoes. Much of Polynesian culture is linked in some way with the volcanic origins of the islands, and in turn, a lot of that has filtered into Western popular culture, especially since the tiki craze that started in the United States in the 1930s, and then especially again also since the release of Disney's Moana. We will talk more about the tiki craze and kind of the the way that tiki culture and Polynesian culture have been appropriated and and kind of thought of in different
2: ways since also about not the, the 1930s. Same. What? Tiki and and like Polynesian like tiki. Oh, yeah, no very tiki, much not the same. Tiki isn't it's not a it's, thing. It's, it's, it's its own bad thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we
1: we're going to talk more <laughs> about that uh, and our own problematic affection <laughs> for it. Tiki themed.
2: There's so many things I don't like though. Like I feel like I I get one. Yeah. <laughs> this is No no, absolutely. This you is do get
1: one, but we but we can like it and be aware and go, ooh. Oh, I hate um it, but I love it. So we're gonna talk more about that in this month's Patreon exclusive
2: deep cuts episode. So <laughs> tune in for that if you um uh, I'm I'm already setting my liberty rules so I can <laughs> do my mid century.
1: I am I don't know. What would I be doing? Gosh, slicking my hair back with something.
2: Yeah. Well, work, well I'll, work I'll just pull my pants up
1: very high. Okay. Um, so I thought I'd start back in <laughs> this episode with the Hawaiian myth of the volcano goddess Pele. So this article from Forbes in 2017 talks about geomythology, which we have mentioned before in our Mm -hmm. Thanks Viking episode this past year, which is uh, kind of a branch of study that tries to link cultural tradition to the geological record. And this is a cool example. So quoting from this article, one myth involves the volcano goddess Pele and her youngest sister Hiaka. Long ago, they arrived on Hawaii, and after a long search, Pele decided to settle in the crater of Kilauea, since then also known as Kalua Opele, or the Pit of Pele. She then sent her youngest sister, Hiaka o Pele, generally shortened to Hiaka, to search for her beloved Lohiau. As a reward, Pele promised to spare Hiaka's forest on the slopes of Kilauea from fire and lava. Hiyaka had to overcome many obstacles, but finally, after many weeks, she managed to bring Lohiau back to Kilauea. Unfortunately, Pele had grown tired, and in a moment of anger, we've all been there, she burned Hiyaka's forest to the ground. In revenge for the burning of her forest, Hiyaka took Lohiau for her own, and Pele, seeing the two of them together, became so envious that she killed Lohiau with a furious eruption. Hiyaka searched for many weeks for the corpse of Lohiao, throwing the rocks sent by Pele in that eruption into the air. So, geomythology tries to link oral stories to geological features and the history behind the formation of such features. The formation of the caldera of Kilauea is dated to 1470-1500, to 1500, CE, and also the Ilaau flow, named after another Hawaiian deity, which is a large lava flow covering the northern slope of Kilauea, formed around 1470. Morphology and a well-developed network of lava tubes suggest it formed during a single prolonged volcanic eruption. It's quite possible that this disastrous eruption was observed by the first settlers on the island, and the memory of the eruption was passed from generation to generation in the form of a myth. The destruction of Hiakas Forest by the furious Pele could describe the lava burning down the vegetation around the crater. The detail of Hiakas Forest suggests also that before the destruction, enough time passed from the previous eruption to grow a dense forest. Also, the last part of the myth is interesting. Hiaka moves and throws rocks into the air during her search, maybe the description of an explosive eruption with a column of ash or steam explosions resulting from the lava coming into contact with groundwater or the sea, so inside those lava tubes. Mm -hmm. Geological evidence supports this reconstruction and shows that powerful and destructive explosive eruptions really happened on Hawaii, and still happen sometimes. (laughs) At least two explosive eruptions between 2,700 and 2,000 years ago produced the Uekahuna ash, evidence for a large ash eruption that covered an area of 230 square miles on the southern slope of Kilauea. Nine other such layers are nowadays recognized. One layer also dated to 1500 CE, and so overlapping with the proposed timing of the myth of Pele and Hiaka.
2: Yeah. So, one of the precarious things about Western anthropologists or other scientists, like volcanologists. Hi, Jeff. Like like Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Um, Who are studying cultures that have evolved around volcanoes is a disconnect between the perspective of the scientists, who themselves are cultural outsiders, and those of locals who might have a sort of cosmologically based view of volcanoes in their area and the danger associated with them. There are plenty of examples of this. Even in popular science writing, indeed, which we are not going to share in our show notes, not here. So, this is from American Scientist, um, something written by um, I might guess an American scientist named John Dvorak, <laughs> um, and volcanoes myths and volcano myths and rituals. And Dvorak writes. After years of studying volcanoes, I'm reminded of how differently people perceive eruptions and natural disasters in general. To someone educated in Western science, the failure of people to evacuate in the face of an impending eruption seems irrational. But geologists cannot yet answer the two questions most important to people who are in such peril. When will the volcano erupt and exactly what will happen when it does? So these people often look to others, shamans and priests, for the answers to two slightly different questions. Why did the volcano erupt and what do I do now? The response to the first query is invariably based on myth, and the answer to the second is always to follow some traditional volcano ritual. That people accept such advice frustrates and often astounds scientists. For example, in May 2006, at Merapi Volcano in central Java, both Indonesian and foreign volcanologists warned the locals that a growing lava dome could collapse without warning, sending a deadly, red-hot cloud of ash down the side of a mountain. Meanwhile, at a nearby village, holy men and hundreds of their followers lit incense and placed rice and fruit and other offerings in small, makeshift boats, and then sent the miniature flotilla down a river. It was a ceremony to prevent their villages from being destroyed by the volcano. A news story about the eruption in science reported that officials were having trouble persuading the villagers to clear out. Instead of listening to geologists, the people were relying on spiritual advisors for guidance, prompting one scientist to note, somewhat incredulously, quote, the level of risk people are willing to tolerate here is remarkable, end quote. Added to that was a comment by Richard Stone, the journalist who wrote the article, calling the failure of people to evacuate in the face of certain danger, quote, obstinacy, end quote. To try to understand such seemingly irrational behavior, I have spent years compiling a list of myths and rituals associated with volcanoes. I have found them described in a variety of sources, including travel writings, religious documents, newspaper articles, even occasional references in scientific journals. I now have hundreds of such accounts for dozens of volcanoes. Examining this collection as a whole, the first startling result is that not all cultures view volcanic eruptions as destructive. For example, in Africa, Um, The volcano Oldonio Lengai, literally Mountain of God, is venerated by the Maasai as a giver of all good things. In gratitude for an eruption in 1917, young mothers went to the volcano and expressed their breast milk on the ground. People who live near Mayon in the Philippines and around Agong on Bali and on the flanks of Madeiras in Nicaragua are well aware that the eruption of volcanic ash greatly enriches the soil, giving better crops. In Hawaii, eruptions are viewed as beneficial as acts of creation and Hawaiians often see their lives mirrored in the level of volcanic activity. On those islands, an eruption usually begins with lava gushing from a long crack in the earth. The hot, highly fluid material leaves a smooth, skin-like texture along the eruptive fissure. Because the structure is reminiscent of a huge vagina, native Hawaiians traditionally regarded an eruption as the menstruation of the goddess Pele, with the red lava always flowing towards the sea, the same path taken in ancient times by women to cleanse themselves. These Hawaiians oppose any attempt to control an eruption by diverting the flow of lava, as scientists have often urged. To them, it would be as unnatural as somehow trying to force a woman to end her menstruation. The notion that an eruption is an instrument of justice, a view evidently held by the elderly woman I encountered in Java in 1982, is
1: a That's ca- from a, a previous piece of, in this. So this is excerpted from slightly later than that.
2: But. Okay. Yeah, Um, is a common one. To the Aztecs who were suffering under the Conquistadors, Momotombo, a high cone located at the edge of a large lake in Nicaragua, was a symbol of defiance. It was said that the ground shook and the volcano roared whenever a Spanish priest tried to approach it. <laughs> the Aeta, an indigenous people living on Luzon in the Philippines, considered the 1991 eruption of Pinatubo as nature's rebellion against the government's granting of permission for geothermal geothermal drilling, and for jets from nearby Clark Air Base, then the largest U.S. military base overseas, to use the area for bombing practice. Many cultures also consider an eruption to be a warning. In nineteen fifty one, village elders said that the explosion of Hibok Hibok on Camiguin Island in the Philippines, which killed hundreds of people and thousands of farm animals, was an indication that, quote, God had been displeased by young Camiguinos who grew lax in their church going, forgetful of the feast days and neglectful of the sign of the cross, end quote. In 1980, at Mount St. Helens, two Christian priests in Longview, Washington, told their parishioners that the ongoing volcanic activity meant that people should be more charitable and more caring of their families, that it was directing the community to, quote, get back to its spiritual moorings, end quote. Such reactions, though they may be anathema to science, cannot be dismissed. Anthropologists no longer regard myths as naive views of nature that retreat from consciousness as science advances. The, these supernatural explanations still hold powerful sway, not because they are factual, but because they represent people's core beliefs. Myths are a much more pervasive and play a greater role than previously thought in all societies, even highly scientific ones such as our own. And then at the end of that, I just want to include a quick, quick interjection of my own, especially when we consider, um, what that author began opened with about sort of a much more recent and talking about villagers being displaced. Um, there's also a very um, materialist approach you could take that's just like, where are they going to go? Like, what control do they actually have? And so if you're thinking about science and sort of modern science, like advising people, but where, where are they going to go? If they evacuate, where do they evacuate to? How are they going to get home? Is there any like that costs money? like there are like there's logistics and cost and agency that's involved that may not actually be be present um, in those communities. And so it's one thing for uh, a geological survey to be like, you should move. It's dangerous and other and when everyone's like, well, I did know there was a volcano here when I was born here. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, just- it's,
1: I just thought, well, both of those things. I just thought that was all a really interesting perspective because I found as I was reading it that, that my, if, if I put myself in that situation of being in a place as an outsider, knowing that there was an immediate danger to the people there, my knee jerk reaction would probably be, y'all should leave. But considering the other perspectives is really valuable yeah and i'm glad i'm glad that i came across this because yeah definitely it's it's just really interesting to think about and i really hope i, I never have to
2: yeah and, and also i think a lot of these come out of um generations and generations of people not being in a position to leave yeah exactly so you learn to deal with it like that's then like there are ways yeah. to deal with it yeah. Um, so let's take a quick break while Anna deals with it. And then we'll come back with more geomythology. So you're not going to want to geomyth it.
1: Thank you for reading the bad joke I wrote for you in our script. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. culturomedia.com.
1: We're back, and we're going to talk a little bit more about geomythology, but this time in the context of Anna gets mad at an article and feels compelled to be a responsible science communicator, and then Amber comes in and gets even mad. Who's surprised? <laughs> not me. This is an article from the BBC, mm-hmm. written in 2015. So, granted, you know, full disclosure, not the most recent, but as I was researching for this script, the clickbaity headline caught my eye, and I, it, I physically out loud yelled no at my computer while I was writing the script so here we are
2: and if in another room of your house your cat's like what
1: <laughs> <laughs> how did mom know <laughs> I was doing a bad <laughs> is what I assume happened because my cat on monster. her keep her on her beans oh on those little beans okay so here's that headline Why ancient myths about volcanoes are often true. Okay. And how the story of Atlantis may be one of them. This is like the inverse
2: kombucha meme.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So the article kicks off with some perfectly interesting examples of geomythology, first from Fiji. And so now I am quoting. Story has it that many hundreds of years ago, Tanovo, chief of the Fijian island Ono, was very partial to a late afternoon stroll. Each day, I mean, that's that's lovely. Each day he would walk along the beach, watch the sun go down, and undoubtedly contemplate this paradise on Earth.
2: Mm.
1: But one day, Tanovo's rival, chief of the volcano Nabukelevu, pushed his mountain up and blocked Tanovo's view of the sunset. (laughs) Just the... He built a little spite house. Enraged at this and robbed of the pacifying effects of his daily meditation, Tanovo wove giant coconut fiber baskets and began to remove earth from the mountain. His rival, however, caught Tanovo and chased him away. Tanovo, in his flight, dropped earth at the islands of Dravuni and Galoa. So he dropped his baskets and Mm -hmm, they made mm -hmm. the islands. When geologist Patrick Nunn first heard this myth, it made sense that it described the volcanic eruption of Nabukulevu with the associated ash falls on other islands in the Kadavu group. But his scientific investigation of the region concluded that the volcano had not erupted for 50,000 years, long before the island was first inhabited around 2000 BCE. The myth, it seemed, was simply a story, not a description of previous events. Wait for it. Then... Two years later, when diggers carved out a road near the base of the volcano, they uncovered pieces of ancient pottery buried underneath a meter-deep layer of volcanic ash. Nunn said, quote, This clearly demonstrated that a volcano had erupted within the last 3,000 years while humans lived here. The, the cultural memory was right, and our scientific surveys were wrong. End quote. If we had a nickel for every time we put that in a script, we'd have a few nickels. Sure was. So then there's also the description of the Pele myth that we described earlier. Still cool so far. But then. But then. Perhaps one of the oldest myths of mankind is that of Atlantis. The story about a prosperous kingdom that disappeared without a trace. As the story goes, the people in this utopian civilization. Hey, utopia means nowhere.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Enraged the gods so much. It don't exist i just I just like that like you were reminded of this recently and a like off off air conversation between us mm-hmm. I mean, I always know what <laughs> you yeah, do right means. it just it's just that
1: it's relevant. Yeah. <laughs> As the story goes, the people in this utopian civilization enraged the gods so much with their moral corruption that the deities sent one terrible night of fire and earthquakes. These catastrophes sank Atlantis into the ocean, never to be found. The ancient Greek philosopher Plato told this moral tale in his dialogues, Critias and Timaeus, which Amber has read. And for centuries, scholars have debated whether those events were true or invented and what the location of Atlantis might have been. One incident that bears a striking similarity to the story was the massive volcanic eruption of the island of Santorini, or Thera, in the Aegean Sea near Greece about 3,600 years ago. The highly advanced civilization of Minoans who lived on the island disappeared (laughs) about the same time. That'll do it. The eruption itself inspired the Greek poet Hesiod to write the poem Theogony in around 700 BCE, which described the battle of giants and gods on Mount Olympus.
2: Yeah, so. Give me
1: some hot takes.
2: Yeah, some so not hot to be. Volcanic a, takes. Not to be a real Jerry Blank here. Do you get that? I need I need you to explain. Okay, so all right, so Jerry Jerry Blank is the protagonist of the the cult show Strangers with Candy. It doesn't like hasn't Ah. aged. It hasn't aged super well, but it's it's Amy Sedaris. So this this reference is old enough to order a beer at a bar. (laughs) (laughs) Like this is, but I got something to say. So is that her the, line? She like it. It's just I sent you. There's a I linked to like a clip. Oh, you this, did, but it's just okay, like increase over the show. It's like increasingly like clumsy and elaborate, like breaking through a crowd and just like being like <laughs> I, I got, I got, got something see- to say. <laughs> it's just like okay, <laughs> uh, great. So um, gosh, now I feel like a real jerk. As the resident person who's read Critias. had you read that when you made that no (laughs) (laughs) reinforce but like i will fully i will
1: happily acknowledge that i've read neither i've read critias
2: um i remember where i was when i read it because i was like what (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know
1: i yeah that's the part i didn't include is that you read it and went this makes no sense I,
2: i remember i remember like saying that like you know, doing my my reading and my professor being like, "Yeah, you got it," I mean, being like, "But it doesn't make sense." <laughs> <laughs> but but it's like, no, I I, re- I read it. I just didn't get it. Uh, but I do get it. I also get it. Okay, not the words it, that please. not the words that Plato put together. Okay. Um, so I mean, I've read Critias, but also I've spent a lot of time thinking and hearing about Atlantis. A lot of time hearing about it um so i've got a few axes i need to grind here <laughs> let me like <laughs> the, the wheel is spinning roll roll out my my knife roll of axes to grind <laughs> <laughs> clink so um what anna just read to us um is talking about two different things one a real volcanic eruption and two the atlantis myth so I'll tackle Atlantis first because that one's... It's more pressing, maybe. <laughs> and, and also like not as relevant to Galaxy.
1: <laughs> uh, so... In that it don't exist.
2: Yeah. So um, rather than me tackling it, I'm going to defer to Stephanie Homhofer, who wrote about the Atlantis myth when she published an essay called The Harmful Pseudo-Archeology of Mythological Atlantis, uh, which she published in Women Write About Comics. It's a Which cool actually, yeah. It's actually, it's actually we'll Wawack. We'll whack. Like, that's what, that's what they call themselves. Wawack. We'll we'll whack. It's not just like us being like idiots about
1: it. Like, we like to say Panas, but like, this is actually
2: we'll whack. Yeah. Stephanie writes, quote, most people are, thanks to things like Disney's Atlantis, The Lost Empire, DC's Aquaman, and the popular... Yes. And the popular television show Stargate Atlantis, oh. <laughs> in addition to other documentaries and books produced about the city. But there's one important fact about Atlantis history, which is com- conveniently left out of the books and documentaries. Atlantis was never a real city. What? Just Just keep listening. Keep listening, everybody. And because of growing concerns about the increase in misappropriations of the past by nationalistic and supremacist movements in particular, this is a fact archaeologists are paying more attention to and trying to make better known. We're trying. Atlantis comes from the writings of Greek philosopher Plato. Sometime between 380 and 360 BCE, Plato wrote The Republic, Timaeus, and Critias. I've read The All Republic. All of these books feature... Okay. Just not the other ones.
1: Did you read that in Greek? Do you mean in Greek class or in the language Greek? Because neither. Okay. No, I read it in in the English translation.
2: Yeah. Okay. All of these books feature fictional, allegorical conversations in which Plato, Greek philosopher Socrates, and a few other characters, such as Timaeus and Critias, discuss the state of justice (laughs) as a thought experiment. A what-if conversation. What if Athens is the perfect society, the pinnacle of justice? That really sucks to think about that. But if that's as good as it gets, <laughs> that's, that's if me. if that is, so. Um, what if I, there, do, I do not like it. <laughs> um, what if there existed a city that was the exact opposite of Athens? What would it be like? I bet women could come downstairs as part of it. That's where Atlantis comes in. I'm back <sighs> to Steph now. <laughs> not just me. The golden age of Athens was a pretty terrible place. <laughs> I, that's my PSA. I, I'm
1: nodding along. Um,
2: On an audio format. says, That's where Atlantis comes in. Invented by Plato as the antithesis to Athens, Atlantis is described as having been technologically advanced, orderly, and law-abiding in its early days when it belonged to the god Poseidon. But over time, as the city began to grow, it became corrupt and unruly. Wanting to expand their empire, the Atlanteans began to spread out and conquered parts of Libya, Egypt, and Europe. But the mighty Athenians led a resistance against the disorderly Atlanteans, beating them and liberating the occupied lands. After the gods decided that Atlanteans had lost their way, they sent three powerful earthquakes to Atlantis and the city sank and disappeared into the ocean. So... If the city of Atlantis was always a fictional story, what changed? Why today do we think Atlantis was a real place? It's a transformation spanning several centuries, beginning with Europeans finding out about the Americas and culminating in Ignatius Donnelly's Atlantis, the Antediluvian World. When Donnelly published Atlantis the Antediluvian World in 1882 Atlantis was truly transformed from myth into reality inspired by the works of archaeologists historians and scholars before him Donnelly was convinced Atlantis was real and he was determined to add some science to the argument to convince everyone that it was real. The purpose of Atlantis, the antediluvian world, was not to reveal Donnelly had found the ruins of Atlantis because he hadn't. Instead, it was more of a "hear me out for a moment" kind of book. So, as ever, this essay is available in our show notes, and she does a bang-up job of outlining the evolution of the Atlantis myth and points out at, at and the points at which it like leveled up. Um, mm-hmm. Such as when Helena Blavatsky and the Theosophical Society came up with the idea of root races and posited, oh. and posited that the, Atla- the Atlanteans were the descendants of the Aryans, so they were the fourth. They were the fourth root race. The Aryans were the fifth root race, and so forth. Great. Um, and so fifth. Yes. So, what about that massive eruption on Santorini? That was the other thing, right? Remember, this was the other thing I was going to talk That about. was the other thing, Amber. Well, I'd talking. love to hear about it. I'm well, talking about it. So what was that about? I hear our listeners clamoring. Well, Matthew Pound and I have a, are about to tell you. Great. Um, so if, you, if you've if you spent a lot of time off and on this past year fantasing booking a romantic solo vacation in the Aegean on Pinterest, is that, you have, is for example? a little bit biographical uh, there, buddy, you're very much aware of Santorini or Fira. There's the main island of Thera, and then there's Therasia, and then there's a couple little bits of island inside what looks like a giant hole in the island, like the rest of the land there just like exploded. Um, Funnily re- enough. Which is exactly what happened a few <laughs> thousand years ago. Um, so it, it truly does look like that. Go Google Earth it. Here is what Matthew Pound writes for The Conversation, as I've started calling it, The Convo. What are you going
1: to do with all that time you save by shortening your words? (laughs) Truly. I'm
2: going to feel cool. What's that like? (laughs) Well, why don't you start abbreviating things and you'll find out. So, Pound writes, sometime during the mid-second millennium BCE, Santorini erupted. It was just... Great thesis statement there. Uh, It was one of the biggest volcanic events in human history. In the past 800 years, only Mount Tambora in Indonesia has erupted with such force. And Tambora was responsible for a global year without a summer in 1816. Yep. The eruptions eruptions sent devastating tsunamis across the eastern Mediterranean that smashed into the Minoans on Crete. At the time, (laughs) one of the world's most advanced civilizations. Sorry, it's just that's very vivid. (laughs) Remember how that BBC article said that the all the, M- the Minoans disappeared because Santorini exploded? It wasn't so much that. The, well, was... the Minoans were not from Santorini. They just happened right. to be there.
1: So yeah.
2: Just... The Santorini... And then they were no longer there. Yeah, but they still existed because they were from yes. Crete. Yes, <laughs> just, I know. Just... Well, I'm not telling you. I'm telling them listener. Okay. Minoans from Crete. Uh, other people are listening to this, Anna. <laughs> the Santorini volcano is a caldera a type of volcano volcano that erupts so violently that its middle collapses in on itself, forming a huge crater. How this crater came to be is the focus of a 2016 paper in Nature Communications by Periskeve Nomiku and colleagues. They have published high-resolution seabed maps and combined these with seismic evidence for what rocks the seabed is made of in the caldera to explain how the volcano collapsed, filled with water, and might have produced tsunamis. Prior to the eruption, the modern caldera did not exist. Instead, a smaller caldera from a much older eruption formed a lagoon at the north of the solitary island. Near the modern town of Akrotiri stood a Minoan settlement, a bustling town with three-story buildings, narrow streets, and courtyards quite different from the palace complexes found in the Minoan homeland of Crete. The prehistoric Akrotiri may have been home to hundreds or thousands of people and was probably an important trading port for the eastern Mediterranean. The eruption first blasted ash high into the sky, which settled back down onto the settlements and farmland. This terrifying, but not immediately catastrophic stage might have given the... <laughs> That's a warning. It's like, you know, it's like a like aqua a shot? level. No, like an aqua level of like the alert system.
1: I don't know. Like, I think
2: at that point, I'd, at, I would dip. We're at terrifying, but not immediately catastrophic. It's yeah, a level those, level six. Those two
1: things are, in, are linked in my
2: <laughs> mind. Like if something is terrifying, I'm going to leave. So this might have given locals the early warning and caused them to abandon the island. Pound says, uh, parenthetically, no bodies have been found among the archaeology, which implies residents probably fled. As the ash continued to be thrown into the air, the island would have been eerily dark with fragments falling from the sky. Imagine a severe rainstorm, but with ash and dust. Mm. Mm -mm. As the ash column grew to its full height, it entered the stratosphere and began to spread out and drift east. Ash from this eruption has been found in Turkey, the Aegean Islands, and Crete. Put a pin in that. In the next stage of the eruption of of the eruption pyroclastic flows hot landslides of volcanic material that travel faster than f1 cars charged charged out of the volcanic cone cone building up large fans that blocked the northwest straits and isolated the caldera from the mediterranean sea (laughs) can you imagine nascar but it's lava (laughs) this is faster than nascar oh formula one this is terrifying this is why this like this episode that episode of spooktober was so awful for me the eruption continued to increase in violence, with multiple cones sending out considerable amounts of pyroclastic flows. Des- deposits of these flows reached 60 meters thick, the height of around 14 double-decker buses, <sighs> and engulfed the Minoan settlement at Akrotiri, creating a Bronze Age Pompeii and a spectacular window into an ancient civilization in the 1600s BCE. It is during this stage that Ku and colleagues, remember with the with the back? The seabed maps and all that Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. proposed that tsunamis would have been generated in Crete, 120 kilometers away. A nine meter high wave tore up the northern side of the island, leaving devastation and debris, debris, leaving devastation and debris in its wake. The waves may have reached Western Turkey and even what is today Israel. It's a 30 foot high wave. Yeah. Like a full on tsunami. The seas eventually settled, the eruption ended, and the modern caldera began to form. Erosion by the sea and a catastrophic landslide opened the Northwest Strait, filling the caldera from the surrounding Mediterranean in a couple of days. Further landslides into this full caldera formed the southwestern straits. Completing the modern geography would take several thousand years more, as the island of Nea Kamini, an active volcano, gradually erupted above sea level. So this is the one that's like... Boop. Up, up, and they, like slowly comes yep. up above the surface. While catastrophic, terrifying, and probably life-changing for large numbers of people, <laughs> mm-hmm. the Minoans themselves didn't die out. They're not from there. Though Santorini was not recolonized, <laughs> evidence from pottery shows civilization on Crete continued for several generations. As a society built on maritime trade, the loss of the port of Santorini, which had direct links to the important bronze-producing island of Cyprus, might have, been, might have diminished their position among the trading powers of the eastern Mediterranean. So sometime we will talk about the Bronze Age Aegean. Um, <laughs> In a six-series podcast. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so <laughs> we're, we're going to do a, like, who's that guy that reads a book and then records a nine-hour hardcore podcast? His-
1: short, uh, d- hardcore history. Hardcore history.
2: And yeah, I want we'll to say George
1: Carlin, but that's not his name. No,
2: it's Dan Carlin.
1: Dan Carlin. We're going to
2: re- we're going to read a book and then and then do a 9-hour podcast about it. Uh, um, so but we won't do that now. Or super soon cuz we talk about the Bronze Age a lot and we need to cool it. Um, so, Expand but for now, horizons. Yeah, for now, let's get back to how this story might have made it into Hesiod and Plato's writing, The Following millennia. Um, so if we're thinking about like, we've already started thinking about geomythology in this episode. So an eruption of like really any kind, but especially one as like violent and like huge as the one, uh, was blocks
1: out the sun for a while.
2: Yeah. Like that would have been a trauma that it would have impacted the then highly interconnected region. So like that, I think that that's something that was sort of. Events in what uh, Pound was saying, but like this was a highly interconnected region at this point. And so the best case scenario would be that like tens of thousands of people were displaced. And the worst case scenario is that like everybody died on this Island that it just like blew up and they were all gone. Um, either way, that's very traumatic. It is. And <laughs> so just, um, you know, you know, I'm here. So it's time to settle up the trauma llama because like this is what I talk about, <laughs> um, you also have to take into consideration the wider environmental impacts of the eruption. So like we've talked about, you know, there was the year without the summer when we talked about the the winter thimble winter, Fimble winter, and also, well, that
1: that wasn't the year without a summer. It was those are two different things. Right? So the year without
2: a yeah, <laughs> year without a winter, <laughs> comma thimble, the year without a summer, comma. Fimble Fimble winter. winter are two Both different of those, examples yes. of like the wider Im- environmental impact of the eruption, um, which. Okay. Um, in like, the case of the Fimble winter, like it,
1: it was like three years worth of agricultural failure, basically.
2: Yeah. And so um, like oral traditions would have kept this alive in some capacity and memorialized it. Um, because this is a corner of the world that we already are aware of a very strong oral tradition. The Homeric epics were, like, kicking around for a long time before anybody wrote them down. So, like, it was it was there. It would have been there. And also, finally, on this one, it's a metaphor. But, Talking about Atlantis, Atlantis is a metaphor. Metaphors don't work if, like, the audience can't relate to it at all. That's not a good metaphor. Like, there's a reason why, like, we're still reading Critias. And finally, for this section... Um, There's a kind of a macro point I'd like to make here, Um, a a larger (laughs) point about what this BBC article did. And it may not be something that the authors even knew they were doing. But that is using indigenous knowledge to prop up pseudo-archaeology is not a good look. Nope. So... There is a lot of scholarship and discourse about the innate chauvinism of scientific research, um, because science didn't just like burst into existence one day. It developed over time and sort of like slowly cooked and took on the flavors of the cultures and the exi- and the knowledges around it, like tofu in a curry. It like takes on. Hungry when you wrote this? <laughs> yeah, I was waiting for my <laughs> I was waiting for my food to arrive, um, but the but it sort of it takes on what's around it it doesn't just mm-hmm. and also it's not it isn't like perfectly objective it, it is no, not it possible be. for it to be perfectly no. objective because it is humans doing it so the ways in which um and there's also a ton of research and discourse around the ways in which science capital s science um subjugates and ignores indigenous knowledge like that's we've already come across that multiple times in, in sort of this episode, but we also talked about this. People who lived here for generations
1: and generations have
2: been right the whole time. And like, just because indigenous knowledge is presented differently or packaged differently, or just not, not done by like scientists, white, white Western Western educated people, like doesn't change the fact that it could be accurate. Um, and science capital S science doesn't like that. Um, irrespective of whether like individual scientists, like are talking about the discipline. So yeah. uh, we don't really need to dig in, really dig around in that too much because it's, it's actually like pretty simple. Like we don't actually have to get into like the theory behind it because regardless of the author's intentions, what content like this does is legitimate views and theories that at the beginning and end of the day, hold up white supremacist views. So disagreeing with the Atlantis bit, invites disagreement with the other points in which indigenous history corroborate geological history. Either way, the white supremacist theories win. Either we get closer to believing that Atlantis was the home of the fourth root race preceding the Aryan root race, or we get closer to writing off indigenous knowledge as fairy tales. And personally, I am not interested in playing either of those games.
0: No, and so that's, that's
2: why arguments like this are irresponsible. Yes. That's, that's thank all I you got.
1: for articulating <laughs> so well what I started to get mad at. And then the problem is when I get angry at an article like this, I sort of know why I'm getting angry about it. But then you do such a better job of telling me why I'm mad at it. And then I go, oh,
2: yeah, that's why oh, I'm thank, mad. Yeah. And I thank you. And I think that a lot of people have that where it's like, this feels gross. And like, yeah, we have I have fi- trouble figuring out why. Yeah, because if you if, if you are um, if you are somebody who are like, relatively well-read or familiar with with these ideas and kind of on board with recognizing colonial attitudes and and like recognizing um the need like recognizing both the like deliberate absence of indigenous voices and of like historically marginalized viewpoints like Mm -hmm. if you're like aware that like they're absent from the narrative, but it's not because they don't exist. Like it sort of like hips you to this idea of like, oh, this feels gross. Why does this feel gross? And just I just have spent more time sitting with it and and reading about it and that sort of stuff, which, yeah. again, is why which I really the, appreciate. Yeah. And is, is why people who like sort of spend their days thinking about these things and, and sitting with this like it, it they owe it to everyone else to talk about it and to package it in a like approachable and accessible way, because there are a Which, lot of people out there listening who are just like, ew, that don't know, like that don't have time to sit and read the kinds of articles that ew. I like send yeah. screenshots off to Anna and I'm like, I hate this.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and so, um, listeners do check out more of what Steph Holmhofer has written yeah. because she engages she with is doing stuff just in a that. really cool way. She, yeah, she's doing exactly that. She's really good to follow on Twitter. Um, do that. We'll have that linked in our show notes uh, along with some mm-hmm. other of her writings. But now let's move on a little bit. Let's shift a bit to some sciencey science, specifically volcanic science. Mm-hmm. So, volcanic eruptions and the materials produced by volcanoes can be very important for archaeology, particularly in the realm of chronology. Chronica's coming early this year, or maybe late, given when we are in the calendar. Anyway, let's talk about dating. Tephrochronology is a geochronological technique that uses discrete layers of tephra oh, or volcanic ash from a single eruption. This is a tephra. discrete dating.
2: Discrete. discrete dating on the DL. Use your your VPN to sign into this one. Hot volcanoes in your area. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't
1: think of a good
2: thing okay, that ends in
1: R. Okay. Vulcan. (laughs) I was trying to think of a good like eruptor, but with, you know, (laughs) E-R-U-P-T-R. Okay. This is, this is terrible. Let's keep going. Uh, So tephra, which is volcanic ash from a single eruption, can be used to create a chronological framework in which paleo-environmental or archaeological records can be placed. So a framework in which you can contextualize other things. Such an established event provides a tephra horizon. The premise of the technique is that each volcanic event, because it's coming from a specific geographic location, i.e. the inside of that volcano, (laughs) produces ash with a unique chemical fingerprint. And so this allows that deposit, however widespread it is, to be identified across the area affected by ash fallout. So if you know the approximate dating of the eruption, then you can associate the ash layer with that chemical fingerprint with that date. And then remember the footprint of volcanic events can be huge. So remember we said, um, that the eruption of the, the Thera or the Santorini volcano, uh, covered basically the whole Aegean. Um, and so on land, and in fact, in sort of marine deposits, you can find that ash layer, and date that to when the volcano exploded. So, the main advantages of the technique are that the volcanic ash layers can be relatively easily identified in many sediments, because they don't really look like the rest of the sediments. It looks surprisingly ashy. And that the tephra layers are deposited relatively instantaneously over a wide spatial area. <laughs> mm-hmm. This means that they provide accurate temporal marker layers, which can be used to verify. Or corroborate other dating techniques, linking sequences widely separated by location into a unified chronology that correlates climatic sequences and events. So because these ash layers fall so widely, if you find something that matches, that is near an ash layer thousands of kilometers away from something else that's near the same ash layer, you can generally make the assumption that those things are from about the same time.
2: Yeah. But this is still, and this is something that's important. I, if I understand correctly, this is something that's important for the dating of the eruption era. This is relative dating. It is relative dating. dating. So we still don't know
1: when it, it doesn't give you a chronological, it doesn't give you a value. It doesn't give you, x number of years ago what it does give you is this happened around the same time as this other thing
2: yeah so we know so when we find this ash deposit somewhere else you know okay before like everything below this is dated to before the eruption of -hmm. of santorini everything after is after that Mm -hmm. um and so that's so the ash layer is during, is during, yeah. So that's something <laughs> that is um possibly going to be helpful in figuring out if it's possible to find the absolute date of the eruption of Santorini. That would be d- that could be done by like if there's like carbonized material, and also like this is or, a weird time, right? This is a a weird time for oh, like, this is radiocarbon- one of those fluctuating
1: things, yeah. But but do not despair because oh. Volcanic sediments. I'm waiting for someone to tell me that <laughs> I mean in general, but specifically about <laughs> dating volcanic materials um, volcanoes are also the source of sediments and rocks that can be absolutely dated using potassium argon radiometric dating. so travel back with me to high school cam. Oh no. <laughs> No, it's okay. We're past that now. I'm just going to explain something to you that was covered in high school chem. Ugh.
2: Was it also Did covered in the college chem that I took that I failed? It was like, I don't know. It was like chemistry for humanities, majors. <laughs> physics for poets. No, Did you have a question? It. Well, yeah, it was just what's potassium. Argon? <laughs> well, I'm about to explain. Okay, <laughs>
1: so potassium argon dating is a form of radiometric dating, which okay. is a larger category that encompasses radio, Active isotopes, and so these are molecules that, when they lose, they're they're unstable molecules. Mm-hmm. So they're same that when <laughs> that uh, can lose neutrons, uh-huh. and that changes their atomic number. So it basically it means that they become another element because they lose that neutron. It changes their atomic composition, and so. Specifically, in this case, we're talking about potassium-40, which is a radioactive isotope of the element potassium. So it's a form of the potassium atom that can lose neutrons. And then and when it does... You know,
2: loses the neutrons, it eventually
1: becomes argon. So when an atom... So we have to think about this on the atomic level, right? So think of a blob yep. of potassium-40 made up of lots of atoms of potassium-40, Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So individual atoms can uh-huh. lose a neutron, which means that they, de- it's called decay, radioactive decay. Uh-huh. They release energy and that neutron, and that atom turns into an atom of argon 40 because it has now okay. changed its atomic composition. Right. So is that keeps then? happening. Will it keep decaying? That atom argon? is. That atom is.
2: That individual atom, atom so is now so stable. when I potassium forty become argon forty, I'm done. I'm You're done, done changing,
1: but you are only a single atom in a larger blob of material. Okay, so my, my fellow while, atoms haven't joined me necessarily, not necessarily, okay. and that is because the loss of neutrons. Is random that that process. There's no way of predicting when a particular atom of potassium 40 will go boop and become argon 40. But taken cumulatively, the process of change of all of the atoms in that sample from potassium to argon mm-hmm. occurs at a consistent rate. So even though the individual events are random, cumulatively. Okay. The gradual process of
2: this is decay. This is, is like constant. the the like rate at which our DNA changes.
1: It's a similar idea that it's but random, tol- but it, it, like that it's, it's random but cumulatively constant. Okay. Yes, yeah, same okay. idea. Totally different processes. Yeah. Um, it's a metaphor. <laughs> it's, <laughs> well. Let's let's hope our audience gets it. <laughs>
2: no, I'm just like as like as an analog of just it's something. Yes. That, Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Those, yes, that's a good a good connection, bud.
2: Thanks.
1: Yeah. The rate at which a sample, so now we are zoomed out from the atomic level. We're now talking about just the material. So the rate at which a sample of potassium forty decays into argon forty is that if you have a hundred percent potassium forty in one point three billion years, fifty percent of that sample will have decayed into argon-40. Now, because of the nature of volcanic sediments, when lava, or I suppose magma, exits a volcano and becomes lava, it is entirely potassium-40. And because it cools so quickly and hardens into a crystalline structure, those molecules of potassium-40 are kind of, they're trapped. So the molecules don't go anywhere, They release energy, but the molecules themselves don't go anywhere. And so a sample of volcanic rock, you can look at it, you can test it, and look at the proportion of potassium-40 to argon-40, and you can use that to determine how much of the original, because you know that the original sample was 100% Mm potassium-40. So then you can look at the rock, you can sample it with mass spectrometry, and you can say how much of this is now proportionally potassium relative to argon. And when you have that information, you can use that to mathematically kind of backtrack and see how long it has been since that sample was 100% potassium 40.
2: Would this since its half-life is 1.3 billion years?
1: Yeah, you use this method to date really old things. Yeah,
2: would it be would it be useful for for an eruption that was four thousand years ago, would it would there be no, of a no? Not necessarily.
1: Um, no. So this is it's one instance where yeah, because the half life is so very long, uh, there are limitations to the method. But there are other things produced by volcanoes in the sediments that can also be dated. And I think you can use things like um, say OSL dating, or things with like the activated electrons. Yeah, but there are other ways that you can you can um, ascribe absolute rather than relative dates to tephra. Um, but the reason I wanted to talk specifically about potassium argon dating, um, cause this comes up a lot in the stuff that I think about all the time is that the area where the oldest humans are found or the oldest sort of pre-human humans, hominins, um, is in the African rift Valley which is an extraordinarily or at least formerly extraordinarily volcanic area, which means that a lot of those sediments include lots of volcanically created sediments and rocks, which means that the fossils that are found in that area can be relatively dated using that method, which is really good because, you know, it's um, the half-life is 1.3 billion years. So that it's uh you won't find humans that are that old, but the earliest humans show up around 2 million years ago. And I'm using humans pretty loosely. Australopithecus is like between 2 and 4 million years ago. And so the sediments from the Olduvai area and the East African Rift Valley um, have this volcanic origin, which means that Even though these are fossils and they can't be carbon dated because they no longer contain any carbon, they're mineralized fossils, they can still be dated using processes like potassium-argon dating, which is very cool and has to do with volcanoes, so I thought we'd talk about it. I'm just
2: thinking about things being 1.3 billion years old. The Earth is very old.
1: Rocks are old. Usually this is for dating, like, geological formations.
2: Yeah. (sighs) that figured out we are back so i first mentioned the whole volcano thing on the, the, show the back whole in, volcano thing back in spooktober 2020 in the buried alive episode um that's just, that's if tough. you want to go listen to that you can maybe but
1: in that i make just, sure you're in a good mood first i guess i just
2: um in that I discussed the horror that was the 79 CE eruption of Mount Vesuvius, which destroyed Pompeii, Herculaneum and Pliny, the elder among other people, (laughs) (laughs) two cities and a dude. So we know specifically about that last one from his nephew's letters to the Roman historian Tacitus, which provide a vivid first person account of something that genuinely frightens me. I will now read those letters. (laughs) Um, and I'll also have this included in the show notes. The show notes. <laughs> the show notes. A series of
1: small amphibious creatures that listen to this podcast. <laughs> it's our show notes.
2: First letter. At that time, being the twenty fourth of August, seventy nine, my uncle was at Messinum in command of the fleet. About one in the afternoon, my mother pointed out a cloud with an odd size and appearance that had just formed. From that Can distance, you imagine I know, like, huh. From that distance it was not clear from which mountain the cloud was rising although it was found afterwards to be vesuvius the cloud could best be described as more like an umbrella pine than any other tree because it rose high up in a kind of trunk and then divided into branches i imagine that this was because it was thrust up by the initial blast until its power weakened and it was left unsupported and spread out sideways under its own weight Sometimes it looked light-colored. Sometimes it looked mottled and dirty with the earth and ash it had carried up. Like a true scholar, my uncle saw at once that it deserved closer study and ordered a boat to be prepared. Sailed to that mountain. Uh, He said that I could go with him, but I chose to consider my studies. (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) No, thank you. Just as he was leaving the house, he was handed a message from Rectina, the wife of Toscus, whose home was at the foot of the mountain, and had no way of escape except by boat. She was terrified by the threatening danger and begged him to rescue her. He changed plan at once, and what, had, what he had started in a spirit of scientific curiosity, he ended as a hero. He ordered the large galleys to be launched and set sail. He steered bravely straight for the danger zone that everyone else was leaving in fear and haste, but still <laughs> kept on noting his observations. To
1: the now, volcano
2: this, zone. This is a somber occasion, Anna. <clears throat> the the ash already falling became hotter and thicker as the ships approached the coast, and soon it was superseded by pumice and blackened, burnt stones shattered by the fire. Oh my God. Getting freaked out. Suddenly, the sea shallowed where the shore was obstructed and choked by debris from the mountain. He wondered whether to turn back, as the captain advised, but decided to go on. Uh, Fortune no. favors the brave, he said. Take me to Pomponianus. All oh, I thought was anus in that word. Um, <laughs> Amber, it's a somber occasion. I know. Pomponianus. Oh. Pomponianus. Pomponianus. Pomponianus lived in Stabiae across the Bay of Naples, um, which was not yet in danger, but would be threatened if it spread. Pomponianus had already put his belongings into a boat to escape as soon as the c- contrary onshore wind changed. This wind, of course, was fully in my uncle's favor and quickly brought his boat to Stabiae. My uncle calmed and encouraged his terrified friend and was cheerful, or at least pretended to be, which was just as brave." Yeah. Meanwhile, the ta- meanwhile, tall, broad flames blazed from several places on Vesuvius and glared out through the darkness of the night. My uncle soothed the fears of his companions by saying that they were nothing more than fires left by the terrified peasants or empty, abandoned houses that were blazing. Which is kind of a hollow comfort. <laughs> it's, just like, it's, just really. it's just burning houses. It's just burning houses. He went to bed and apparently fell asleep for his loud, heavy breathing was heard by those passing his door. But it's like, it's like my mom was there being like, you must have been sleeping. I heard you snoring. This is that my mom was there. (laughs) (laughs) But eventually the courtyard outside began to fill with so much ash and pumice that if he had stayed in his room, he would have never been able to get out. Like his door would have been blocked by all the stuff. Yeah. Because he had a door onto the courtyard and the courtyard was filling up with debris. Uh, he was awakened and joined pomponianus and his servants who had sat up all night. They wondered whether to stay indoors or to go out into the open because the buildings were now swaying back and forth and shaking with more violent tremors. Outside, there was the danger from the falling pumice, although it was only light and porous. After weighing up the risks, they chose the open country and tied pillows over their heads with cloths for protection. It was daylight everywhere else by this time, but they were still enveloped in a darkness that was blacker and denser than any night, and they were forced to light their torches and lamps. My uncle went down to the shore to see if there was any chance of escape by sea, but the waves were still far too high. He lay down to rest on a sheet and called for drinks of cold water. Then suddenly, flames and a strong smell of sulfur, giving warning of yet more flames to come, forced the others to flee. He himself stood up with the support of two slaves, and then he suddenly collapsed and died, because, I imagine, he was suffocated when the dense fumes choked him. When light returned on the third day, after the last day that he had seen, this was the 26th of August, his body was found intact and uninjured, still fully clothed and looking more like a man asleep than dead. So that's the first letter. The, so and there's this in the show notes you'll be able to read the second letter, which is um, also um, Pliny the Younger's personal experience. Right, because at that point Pliny the Elder
1: was no more.
2: Yeah, um, and it's really, really scary.
1: It is really scary, and and very sort of what's the word I want? Just candidly very candidly mm, yeah. written yeah, yeah it's which, it's like which makes it scary really it's, it's like just some like first, like first century
2: ce found footage it's like that kind yeah, of yeah
1: yeah yeah except the found footage is in your head which is worse
2: yeah so it yeah it, it's just like a it's a guy writing his friend being like my uncle died in this like natural disaster our lives are like completely shattered by what happened kind of way like which is just yeah. not something yeah. that we often have a historically into. no yeah no um the unique cases
1: that that Pompeii and Herculaneum present archeologically it's kind of cool that there's a historical accompaniment yeah as well sort of a it's it's not it's it's like a first and a half hand account because really. it's like he chose to stay home yeah. but he still experienced
2: yeah i mean it's a the, it's a
1: survivors account like
2: it's yeah mm mm-hmm. Um, yeah which is is something to um I don't know something to to keep in mind when we think about Akrotiri being destroyed uh there were probably plenty of of plentys elder and yeah. younger
1: in that situation yeah I mean anytime anything like this happens it's a lived experience and it's something that does affect lives and and end lives and ways of life so You know, it's, um, we, we make goofs on this show, but sometimes it's not time for a goof. And so with that, we'll leave you for this week, listeners. And thank you as always for being with us. We will be back in your ears next week with more content, which you can find on Apple podcasts,
2: Spotify, SoundCloud, or anywhere else you like to listen. Yeah. And you can also find us on social media. Um, over there, we are, we're on Facebook. It's the dirt podcast. We're on Twitter at Dirt Podcast, and on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. It's all the matching names were taken. And you can also see that all together on
1: our website, which is thedirtpod.com. And there, along with all that smushed together social media, you can find yourself some merch. You can find all of our archived back episodes. You can sponsor an episode. You can see our syllabus for educators. There's a lot of good stuff there, so go check it out. Thanks, everybody. And-
2: When is this coming out? Is this coming out after? After the live show, yeah. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed our show.
1: Yeah, thank you to everyone who came out. We don't know how many of you or how it went, but we hope it went great. Gosh, we hope it went okay. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye.
0: Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.